Good afternoon. We could do a little better. Good afternoon, everyone. It's weird uh, hearing the same introduction twice. Uh, Pastor Steve talked about uh, guest preachers like you know special trade, fine dining. Uh, I, I'm gonna share the same joke. I think my job is to make you appreciate your pastors a little bit more. So if I do a bad job, uh, you know you will say to yourself, "Wow, we really have a good one." So, <laughs> so you could appreciate a little bit more. Uh, it's been a, a special treat to be here to worship with you, uh, not only in this location in Brea. And I've been teased all morning about all this food truck and different thing. I haven't even come close to eat any of it, so I'm starving, I'm hungry, but I'm really excited to share God's word with you. And uh, I don't have time limits, so I'm gonna take my time. Uh, uh, but what I want us to consider this morning is, what is the core message of the gospel? And if you really understand it, what implication does it have in your life? Uh, and I want to be personal uh, with you. I want you to think about this. Uh, what do you believe in? And how is it changing you? We talk about gospel quite a bit, right? But knowing the gospel and being convinced of the gospel is it making a difference. Not just in the way that you uh, fulfill your duty as a Christian, but maybe outside of the walls of this building. From Saturday, you know, Monday to Saturday, is it making a difference? Is there that urgency to share the gospel? And if so, why? And I want you to think about all these things together. So we're gonna come to this beautiful story, and I do really appreciate what uh, Pastor Steve was trying to have you guys do, to really find yourself in the story and I think he heard two sermons, I think he finally guessed it. Uh, and I want you to find yourself in today's story because if you don't find yourself in today's story, it will not make any sense to you. So let's begin. If you are a student of scripture, uh, the Bible, and if you've been following the gospel drama, and every drama has to have a conflict, right? And the very um, conflict that Jesus has, often in the scripture was with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, there was this animosity between um, those two. Jesus hated the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the scribes were constantly looking for an opportunity to destroy Jesus. And the reason for that is because Jesus wants to reveal something very, very important to all of us. True religion is not about focusing on the external righteousness. Pharisees and the scribes, their righteousness was, were perfect. In other words, they were perfect. They were spiritual people. They were religious people. They did everything right according to the law. But Jesus always pointed out their shortcoming. He did not shy away from, um, uh, let's say, you know, calling them to be the, the, the you know, children of the devil, the sons of Bifur, and he called them false teachers and so on and on and on. And the reason for that is because Jesus wanted to share this information that true religion and his is not like other moral teachers. It's not about your external goodness or righteousness, but gospel is addressing something that is deep within your heart. 
And when I say heart, heart doesn't mean your place of emotion, but we are talking about the control center of who you are. It's revealing your true condition of yourself. And that's what Jesus wanted to do. So if you follow the gospel, you know there were bad blood between the two. They were constantly going at it. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they've been wanting an opportunity to simply put an end to Jesus' teaching for good. And ultimately, they do succeed, right? Because ultimately, Jesus died at the hands of the teachers, and he is crucified. But we know that God overturns the evil scheme to bring salvation, and that's the glory of God's plan of salvation. But coming back to the story, so the Pharisees and the scribes, they now have an opportunity to seize so they brought this woman to test Jesus. And this is where you have to appreciate the commentary of John, uh, the, the writer of this gospel. He says very clearly, they brought this woman to test Jesus so they may have some charge against them. So they brought this woman. Who was she? Well, she was a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And if you know anything about Jewish law, this was not a misdemeanor. It was a felony. And God hates adulterous women. The Bible actually says that. It was a violation of God's holy innocence. It meant to trespass God's holy covenant. After all, it was a violation of the seventh commandment. And you heard the principle, right? Let the punishment fit the crime. And that was the case with adultery. Such crime was intolerable. It was actually committed in the law of Moses that such people should be stoned and put to death. Capital punishment. If you commit adultery, you are worthy of capital punishment. That was the consequences of it. And you know what made it worse, especially this case, was this notorious evidence and incontestable proof. And notice the emphasis there. She was caught in the very act of adultery. She got caught. So even before there was a trial, you could presume that she was already pronounced guilty. So they brought a real sinner, woman who was guilty in the eyes of the Lord. But isn't that amazing? And this is why I love Bible story, right? Any, whether it's a movie or book, any good piece of writing is, there has to be a story within a story. And there is. As serious as this case was, what really confronted Jesus was not a case of morality. It was a case of impossibility. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't bring this woman because they were seeking Jesus' authority or his advice on this matter. But they brought this woman to question and to challenge and ultimately bring charge against Jesus. So what was their real intention? It is revealed in their question. Jesus, what do you say? So let's set this up. Jesus is teaching in the temple early morning, as he, you know, often he did uh, that in, the, uh, in his ministry. So he was teaching in the temple. There's probably a gathering of a lot of people. And all of a sudden, this crowd rushed into the place, led by the Pharisees and the scribes. And by the way, you know the Pharisees and the scribes did not touch this woman because they will never associate with any defiled people. But in the midst of Jesus' teaching, 
they threw this woman to the middle. In other words, she becomes now the center of attention. And now, they, in open arena, challenge Jesus. What do you say? Jesus, you are a teacher of the law. You know what the Bible says. Such should be stoned to death. But we also know that you are a friend of sinners. And one of the reasons why they had such a strife between the two is because Jesus had total indifferent attitude toward the sinners. He broke every religious regulation that is out there when it comes to dealing, associating with sinners. He dined with the marginalized, the broken, and the needy, and the defied people, and he became a friend to them. We know you are a teacher who embraces these people, but clearly the law says we need to condemn such sin. So what do you say? We want to know. Will you please enlighten us? Here she is. We know what we got to do. We're stuck. Oh, why don't you teach us, you who are a teacher of God's law? So if you're following the story, you expect something mighty from Jesus, right? After all, he's the greatest teacher. So you expect something. Oh, he's going to come back with one of those, you know, uh, comebacks, and he will utterly defeat the Pharisees and the scribes. But instead, his reaction, particularly his silence, puzzled all of us. You know what he does? Let me kind of react this. He's teaching, and he gets interrupted. The Pharisees, they ask, what do you say? And now Jesus is caught in between the two. If he opposed the law, then he contradicts everything that he's been teaching and his association with the sinners. But if he sides with his illustrious woman, he does what is unthinkable in the eyes of Jewish people. He becomes a trespasser of the law of Moses. So he's cornered. Absolutely nowhere to go. So you know what he does? He actually goes down. Other translations say he stooped down. It's actually a picture of someone becoming smaller, smaller, humbler, humbler by the minute. And now the Pharisees thought, we got him. This is that opportunity we've been seeking. So I want you to hear their ego that's rising by the minute. They're raising their voice. Oh, do you not have anything to say? Everyone look. He's speechless. Are you going to say anything? Are you going to teach us anything? Are you going to enlighten us? And Jesus remains silent. Why? And that puzzled me quite a bit. Why does he not say anything? And then, my experience in my marriage gave me a clear clue. You're laughing because you already heard this to understand what is going on here today. I've been married for 15 years. Uh, I have two younger uh, brothers, so three boys in the family, which means we never helped out my mom in the kitchen. So when I got married, it was such a foreign concept for me to step into the kitchen and help my wife out. I never actually did the dishes in my life. But my wife had a different expectation. 
She said, Ben, I'm not asking you to do everything. Can you just clean up your mess? And I said, okay, I will. And, you know, I was not mature, you know, godly back then. So I kept on telling her, I will do it. Little later, little later, and next thing I know, huge pile of dirty dishes, right? One day after her work, she probably had a really bad day at work, right? People do, and women do. She came in, and she saw that, and she got so angry at me. And, you know, I didn't know that that was in her. When she got angry at me, she didn't say anything. She just made this animal noise. Oh! And she just stormed out and went to the bedroom. I'm like, what is wrong with you? You know, and then I don't just leave my wife alone. I actually followed her. What is wrong? And then she said, you got to fix this. You are lazy, and I want you to do it. And if you don't do it, I'm not going to talk to you. And, you know, now it's turning into a pride versus pride, right? So I said, don't talk to me. I got a lot of other friends that I could talk to. <laughs> so I just walked out. First day was great. I watched ESPN all day and no nagging. Great. Second day, she didn't talk to me again, and I called up all my friends. Had a great conversation. We caught up. It was great. And then third day came along, and I knew how serious she was because she did not say a word. And now I got really pissed off, too. Go ahead. Let's see who wins this one. Okay, go. Try another day. She did. Fourth day. Fifth day. Whole week. And that's the first time I've ever experienced the power of the silence of a woman because when she would not recognize my presence in the room, I felt like I was nothing. So I got down on my knee, and my plea was, can you just talk to me? <laughs> you know when someone is so absolutely angry at you, no words can express your ill feeling that you have. Jesus did not say a word, not because he needed some time to think over, think it over. He did not say a word because he knew maybe you will think that, oh, whatever he said will get him in trouble. But he remained silent because he saw right through the evil intent of the Pharisees, more so than the adultery itself. He knew they were conspiring murder in their heart against him. The funny thing about men's sinfulness is consistent, is persistent. So when Jesus stooped down, when he remained silent, the Bible tells us that they continued to ask him. The word continue is an interesting word. They continued to persistently with a determination went at it. Oh, hello. You got to say something. Oh, you don't have anything to say. Oh, okay. Because you don't know what to say. So there, ego took over. But Jesus had enough. So he did what only he was able to do. 
he stood up. And he didn't make light of this woman's sin, nor did he abolish the seventh commandment, nor did he defend himself with many words, but he went directly to the core of the issue. And he said, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at this woman. The reference comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17, 7. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Something that you need to know, according to Jewish law, if you falsely accuse someone, then very punishment of the crime will be upon yourself. So he knew, if you are accusing this woman falsely, the very act of stoning will be upon you. In other words, they were convicted of their own wickedness. And you know what is different about Christianity compared to other religions? We address the issue of your heart. And when I say heart, I don't mean a place of emotion, but I am talking about the control center of who you are. It's what drives you. It's what makes you who you are as a human being. And you remember when Jesus said he's not concerned about what you do, but he always comes back to the real focus, and that is, out of your heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, on and on and on. And here Jesus turns the table and he judges the wickedness of the people. And what does he do? He goes down, remains silent again. But the beauty of today's story is how Jesus silences his critics. And those who are loud in their pride, in their ego, self-righteous attitude become silent in the presence of God. Have you met the Lord? Has Jesus revealed your heart? There's an interesting phrase in the scriptures describing God. He knows the secret of your heart. You may deceive or fool other people. But when you come face to face with God, he exposes what is in your heart. And to a great extent, are we not like the Pharisees? What is one most common complaint that you hear about many believers from non-believers? Holier-than-thou attitude. You are haughty and deceited and conceited. They will look down upon people because they are lesser than us when it comes to morality. But Jesus wants you to understand the real issue at hand, and that's what true religion is. If you are intrigued and interested by Jesus' silence, there's another silence that captures our attention in today's story. And isn't that fascinating? And the silence comes from the main character, this adulterous woman. Have you noticed? Have you read carefully? She really doesn't say anything till the end. So let's try to kind of reenact this as well. 
we were told that she was caught in the very act of adultery. So this didn't happen in, uh, in the evening. It was some time ago in the morning. She was probably at, you know, I don't want to call, you know, like a lover's house or boyfriend's house or something. So she was having this unacceptable relationship. And people barged in and walked in, and they caught her. And do you also see the evil scheme of the Pharisee? Because it always takes two to tango, right? But there's no man who is brought to the table as well. That shows what they were thinking and conspiring from the beginning. Anyway, going back to her, if you know anything about ancient setting, anytime somebody is caught in an act of crime, it turns into a mob justice. That is to say, everybody will come out. And notice, we don't know where she committed, but she was dragged all the way to the temple where Jesus was. And I want you to fill in the blank and follow that journey. Probably hundreds of people came into the street. And you know, they began to call her by names. She's probably naked, probably covered with some clothing, but she's fully exposed in shame and disgrace. All along the way, she's being dragged maybe by her hair. Can you see that affliction, that scrutiny that she's under? People are calling her by name, even maybe spitting at her, maybe throwing things at her. Who knows what sort of cruelty that she received? She received blow after blow, bruise after bruise. But more so than her physical discomfort. And I don't want to get into psycho, you know, uh, mental uh, analysis of who or where she was. But what is so intriguing to me is the fact that she did not say anything. Why? Because you and I know when we are desperate, right? When we are cornered, we will beg for mercy. Please forgive me. I will never do it again. You will fight for the chance. But as she's being dragged into the temple, thrown into the middle, meaning she becomes a center of attention, everyone looked at her, but now she did not say anything. No begging, no pleading. She remained silent. Who does that? Only someone who is beyond help. She was found guilty, but it wasn't the weight of guilt that made her to be hopeless. You know what it was? It was actually her shame. Here's what you need to know about the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt has to do with your behaviors, that you made a mistake. So you regret your decision, you're disappointed in yourself, but you always can say, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna learn from it. But shame is not about your behaviors, but it's about yourself. Rather than saying, I made a mistake, you say, I am a mistake. For those of you who know Monica Lewinsky, uh, she gave this TED talk entitled The Shame, The Price of Shame. And then later on, she wrote this amazing article entitled Shame and Survival in Vanity Fair. And if you ever get a chance to do it, please read. She talks about our struggle, the price of being the very victim and the object of humiliation. And she said this, 
for a decade in this time of self-imposed silence. I lost my voice. More so, I lost my identity. I regretted my decision every single day of my life. But more than anything, I did not want to live. This lady, anonymous lady, all we are told, her identity is her shame, an adulterous woman. That's all we know of her. So she is crying. Bible doesn't say it, but I might put my life on it. She was crying. She buried herself, thinking and hoping things will be different, but fully knowing that at any moment she is about to receive the first stone that will be thrown at her. As a young Jewish girl, she knew the consequences of it. Can I be honest? And this is no exaggeration. She is literally standing in the face of death with no hope because she knows in her heart she is guilty, guilty, and guilty. And more so than ever before, she is fully ashamed of who she is and what she has done. So she has come to accept her fate and destiny, and she gave up. So she remains silent. And the moment of anticipation, in the very place of her shame, she hears a voice. But it was a different voice. Not a voice of an accuser, not a voice of a Pharisee, not a voice of a scribe, not a voice of a neighbor, not a voice of judgment, but something about this voice was comforting and soothing. And she heard this voice that is filled with sweet mercy of Jesus who said, woman, where are they? And for the first time, she looks up, and there in the moment of her shame, she encounters Jesus. In the moment of her disgrace, she makes an eye contact with Jesus, and Jesus asks, has no one condemned you? And she looks around, and lo and behold, not a single accuser remain in that place. Where are they? Jesus asked. I don't know. Has anyone condemned you? No one. And there, Jesus declares what was so needed in her soul. He says, neither do I condemn you. True religion becomes personal because it speaks to your soul and the greatest need of yourself. Tim Keller makes this comment. To be loved but not known is comforting but is superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest 
if the walls can speak, if it can expose what is going on in your heart, can we be frank for a second? I'm fearful whether you will even be here to listen to what I have to say. My wife knows me, reads me like a book, but I have to confess, she doesn't even know some of the things that is going on in the secret chamber of my heart. And you know what is amazing about who God is? Bible says God knows the secret of your heart. But here's the more amazing thing. He knows you fully. But to be loved truly is what you and I need the most in life. Can I boast about my Lord a little bit here? He knows this 43-year-old man better than anyone else. But he never gets disappointed in me or angry at me. But he said, I still love you. That's life transformed. You remember the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman? Remember another adulterous woman who has been married five times? And the man that he was living with was not even her husband. You know what the takeaway point of the, the conversation was at the end? She goes back to the town. And let me remind you, the town was full of people who used to criticize her, finger pointed at her. And she was known and identified as an adulterous woman. But she runs back to the town, and she declares, come, see the man who told me everything that I ever did in my life. Isn't that intriguing to you to some extent? How is it a takeaway point of meeting Jesus? What she is saying to other people is this. He knows everything about me. I don't need to hide it because I was hiding all my life in isolation, being away from the people. But he met me in place of shame, in my place of disgrace. He knew me and he still told me he loved me and that's when I experienced grace for the first time in my life. I have no idea how your life is, where you come from, but I know there's one commonality that we all share together in this room. We know a thing or two or many things about guilt and shame, do we not? You know why you need to meet Jesus? Because he's the only one who will look directly into the soul, the eyes of your soul, and he will declare to you, I love you. That's the message that you need and others need. I finish with this. This pastor recalls this particular incident when he dedicated himself to be a pastor. He became a believer during his college years, and he was very gung-ho about his faith. And you know one of those uh, kind of late boomer, they get really excited, what do they do? They just go all out, right? 
he started sharing the gospel with everyone. He used to work at a coffee shop. He shared the gospel with the customers, and he shared the gospel with the coworkers, and he was always about, hey, let's go to church together. So there was one coworker uh, that, and whom he uh, befriended, and he told her, hey, let's, let's go to church. Will you uh, consider coming to church with us? It's a great place. Uh, she said, no, I'm busy. No, I got other plans. Uh, but he was so persistent and she kind of wanted to cut him off for good, right? So he said, you know what? Let me just have this talk with you. Let me just tell you. I used to be a Christian, but I don't go to church anymore. So he asked, why not? Well, here's another information you need to know. I got married when I was young, but I got divorced. And I remember going back to church, and everybody used to look down upon me, and I don't want to go there anymore. I don't need it in my life, and I don't want that. And he's like, no, 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 no. My church is different. My pastor is great. We'll embrace you. We'll accept you. I want you to come. No, that's the reason why you should come. So he was so persistent, she said, okay, I'll go with you just once. So you know how it is when you bring a friend, your friend who's never been to church, you know you pray desperately, right? Lord, my pastor better be on this day. I am praying that Holy Spirit will work, that there will be a salvation today. My friend needs to know the gospel. So he was praying and he was, you know, uh, uh, interceding on behalf of the pastor and the church. He said, let this be the day she will come to hear the gospel. Guess what the pastor decided to preach on that Sunday? The sanctity of marriage. And he taught all the biblical truth. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a covenant that you make between men and women, but more than so, it's a covenant that you make with God. It's a beautiful thing. It's a blessing. But if you're sinning, you need to stop because God hates divorce. He said all the right things. And now the guy is like, what? I picked the wrong day to bring my friend to church. And then the pastor continued to illustrate the beauty of marriage. He brought out a rose. You guys know where this is going, right? He said, this is your marriage. Look how beautiful it is. Well, you know what happened when you flirt with temptation and different things? You begin to destroy this beautiful marriage. So he picked a petal and he threw it down. And he kept doing it. If you're sinning, if you're breaking your marriage, this is what you're happening. And he starts stepping upon it. And he said, you are destroying this rose. Who wants this? Who will ever want to take this? And the friend, the guy was like, taste the gospel. Who wants it? Jesus does. needs to hear that. Jesus wants that broken, ugly rose. He will take all your shame and disgrace. Hence the reason why he died on the cross. So that you may be forgiven. And be free from the weight of guilt. And shame that kills you inside. What are we sharing with the people? 
Do you not know people who are broken, who are oppressed in their own guilt and shame? Have you experienced that true liberation? The courage that enables you to share even your deepest and personal shame, but you could say to God, look how amazing he is, who loves me unconditionally, even though he knows me fully. My prayer for not only Crossway, my church as well, is that we'll become real with what we believe. And if you understand the gospel and if you know the implication, and if you have experienced that sweet voice of Jesus who lifts your countenance, looks at directly in your heart and say, neither do I condemn you then I promise your life will never be the same again. And I hope and pray that you will come to believe in that. And I hope and pray that you will be gone home by sharing that sweet, beautiful gospel. What is the message of Christianity and what is the message of the gospel? Simply, it is to say, Jesus is better than anything else in this world. He is better than money. He's better than your friend. He is even better than your spouse. He is better than sex. He is better than drugs. He is the most beautiful savior who loves you unconditionally. And that's why you and I follow Jesus. And may it be the commitment of each and every one of us who is a Christian in this room. If you're not a Christian, if you think that somehow I have so much baggage, no one will be able to love you, let me tell you, he loves you. For he had died for you on the cross to save you. And my prayer for you is that you will find Jesus who will pardon you and who will give you renewal and restoration, meaning, purpose, and true, true love in your life that you and I need so desperately. May the Lord bless you. Let's pray together.